What is going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in and welcome to the Accidental Parents Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lucas. And I am Amanda. And today we are bringing you this intro from one mic. I am literally sitting on Lucas's yeah, lap. Shorty's sitting on my lap right now. So you already know what's poking her in the butt. Jesus. Just kidding. Sherry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> You're listening back to this. Anyway, today we are bringing you our first interview ever, which I am super excited about. Yeah, it was super fun. It was my first time interviewing someone on a podcast, so I feel a little accomplished right now. (laughs) Sherry Foose is a marriage and family therapist, and she's also the creator of The Narrative Method. Her writing and her commentary has been featured in publications like Huffington Post, Women's Health, Thrive Global and Fatherly, and honestly, this conversation is such a good one for anybody who is married or just in a committed relationship. We talk about so many things in this episode, not only about marriage and relationship, but also kids and family, and so I really think that this is all-encompassing of how to build a healthy relationship with your partner so that you can model that for your kids. Yeah, Sherry was so much fun, and it was so great having her, and honestly, You know, the biggest thing I really got out of all of this was that therapy is important. And what's super cool is that you don't have to go to therapy if you have issues. You know, a lot of healthy couples still go to therapy. A lot of, you know, healthy minded people go to therapy because it's just really good to go and talk and communicate and express. And I think learn is the most important thing, too. I think it's everything that our Western medicine culture is adverse to which is preventative care i think therapy literally is preventative care and i just think that our healthcare system doesn't do that great of a job at encouraging people to do the preventative work before they get to the situations where their marriage is in yeah shambles. and i think it's it's really hard for people these days to admit they're wrong as yeah. well and you know we got to start admitting we're wrong more because we got to start throwing that stubbornness out the door, you know? Well, and you'll listen you'll listen to Sherry in her perspective, but she's really, really about like, you know, we're not perfect and, and that's never the goal. It's just about to be good enough and also to connect deeper with ourselves and others. She's I'm perfectly all, imperfect, baby. She, you're going to get that tattooed. That's <laughs> Cross my chest. That is honestly all she is about is just helping you foster a deeper connection with yourself and then so that you can in turn do it for others and with others. Um, and so we really talk about so many things in this episode. And I think it's just a really beautiful conversation. If you're curious about therapy, whether it's for yourself or for your marriage or your um, partnership, and even for your family, I think we, we go a lot of places in this episode. I think we do too. So enjoy it. Have some fun with it. And don't forget to throw us a five-star rating and review. Comment on our social media. Uh, we love to see you interact with our posts. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the episode. So we really wanted to get you on because we actually just got married in March. We went to the courthouse and we were like, you know what? We're just going to officiate ourselves. We're going to do the damn thing. And so now that we are in a marriage, which feels so odd, but beautiful to say, I think there's so much wisdom to be learned from you, especially because you've had years and years experience with married couples. So the first thing I want to just ask you, cause I think, I think therapy is becoming more of like a widely accepted thing, but I think marriage therapy is also still a little bit taboo because 
feel like you both have to be on the same page to really kind of dive into that. So what can someone expect when they're going to you for marriage therapy? What does a session look like? Well, you know, it's a, it's a little different for each person, but for me, um, I use humor because that's just part of my nature. And typically it's more one person's idea than the other. And if it's more the idea of the person who's actually had therapy and feels somewhat comfortable with it, I really try and, you know, bring in the other person and make them feel comfortable. But I make it really clear that nothing is mandatory. I mean, you don't have to worry about being hypnotized and forced to say things in a particular way that aren't aren't comfortable for you or aren't true for you. But that said, when we're in couples therapy, there cannot be secrets. Mm. Um, And that is really important because otherwise I would be in cahoots with one of you and that would make the other one even if they never knew, you know, really um, compromised. So what you can expect is uh, being welcome to feel at home, to feel safe, to be who you really are. And if your goal is to just make your marriage better, make your communication better and make your individual lives better, there's really nothing that's going to be, you know, any more complicated than getting to know ourselves is, which is complicated. But (laughs) if somebody's on the fence about whether or not the relationship can continue, that's really where you get into some more difficult stuff. And if you will be willing to stay with it, you may find that the reason you wanted to leave was because you were afraid to go to the next level. Um, or there was something you misunderstood, or, you know, I've told you this a million times and you still do it. Well, either they don't hear it because you're saying it in a way that they don't want to hear it. They're not capable of doing it or something else. So it's always a good idea to not do something for the millionth and one time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I honestly, I love how you bring up the point of honesty as well. You know, you bring up the point of being in cahoots with someone if they don't bring honesty to the table. And it's, it's really that accountability that, that you can bring that mutual accountability to the table that I think is, is super important. And then another question, you know, I, I really think about when um, having you and, and your time here as a guest is that I feel like a lot of people, and especially me, think of therapy as something someone goes to or someone uses when they have a problem in their life or uh, when they're trying to fill a void. But is therapy also used um, by healthy couples? Oh, yeah. First of all, did you ever have this class in school? Did anybody who was ever pregnant have a class in, okay, you might be exhausted. You may may never take a shower. If you're broke, (laughs) this isn't going to help. I mean, all of the kinds of issues that make each day in and day out exhausting and complicated much less what it really means to share a life, to, sh- to share in child rearing. And you're not going to always agree on the best way to do everything. So the thing about therapy is, you know, sometimes words get so in the public lexicon that they really lose their meaning. 
what it what it really could be thought about thought as especially in terms of couples is like building a foundation that we can really grow from a foundation of trust and having a positive experience of being vulnerable a lot of people are afraid of being vulnerable because stuff has happened to us all in our lives so when I say to go easy and to not make people feel like they're being put on the spot, it's not because we don't ultimately want everybody to get on the same page with depth and honesty. It's just that we have to respect the fact that people have different timeframes, different levels of revealing their, their feelings. And every time you do something where there's one answer, oh, this course will take you to nirvana, or this is the way, or this is the dot. I mean, life is complex. We are all complex. And each journey has to be viewed with reverence. Like, I don't know where this is going to go. Let me ask you this. Do you think that people are so adverse to therapy because as a society, we've kind of come to a agreement, not all of us, I'm not this way. I don't think anyone here is this way, but I feel like a lot of the older generations, especially, and still younger generations don't really believe that. Like when you get in a relationship, you're, you're continuing to grow. I feel like for so many couples, they get into a relationship and they're like, you are exactly the same person I've married or, you know, started dating years and years and years back. Do you think that's why people exactly, or expect them to be. Do you think that's why people are so adverse to therapy? Because even if there's not a problem, there's still room for growth always. And I just don't think people really know that. You know, I don't, I don't see that um, so much. I think there are cultural differences. Certain cultures don't believe in telling their private stories to another person. Right. We have to respect that, you know, it, 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 it's does everything doesn't have to be right for everybody. There are certain people who may have had less exposure to studying the humanities or philosophy or introspective experiences who would still think of therapy as something that would be a negative. But I think huge amounts of people, especially in my generation, who are very exposed to contemplating the meaning of life. Um, I I don't see it so much as a generational thing, as an educational thing, or as a cultural thing. So, I mean, in each case, compound that with individual beliefs and experiences. But I really believe everybody is smart. And I know this because I've worked with people at different IQ levels, which is, it's, it's really, a stupid thing because it just measures in a very narrow way but regardless of that people with an average iq or a below average iq understand plenty it's not that we're not smart it's not that we're just afraid it's just that as the human animal is wired to be afraid of difference That's why, you know, bias comes in. If you're not brought up in a multicultural environment, you see someone who looks different from you, uh, you know, out in the wild, you will will probably be afraid. 
if you've seen different kinds of people from you on TV and you've gotten an idea that they're good or bad or this or that, you'll probably approach it that way. And it's the same with, with what it means to know yourself. But how can you really manifest a life of purpose and meaning and beauty and a legacy for the few years that you're here if you don't really think deeply about who you are, what's happened to you, and most importantly, how to separate yourself from the negative things that have happened to you. I love that. And I love your point on the different cultures and how different cultures kind of look at marriage differently. And I kind of relate that to, to my childhood and, and my upbringing where I'm not necessarily from the Western culture. So watching my parents and, and their marriage and their connection, I feel like was a little bit different than mm -hmm. my friends who had generations of family that lived in the US that had Western culture. Um, so that's really interesting. And I wanted to ask you, you know, I'm not too sure about your past and how many different cultures and marriages, uh, you know, how educated you are in that. I'm sure you're very educated on different cultures and how they do marriage. But as far as Western culture marriage and how you can compare it to maybe Eastern or other cultures, where do we stand in, you know, the health of, of our marriage compared to the health of others and in, in other cultures? Well, divorce is really high. Yeah, that's, it that's doesn't have to thought, be. right. And here's one of the most important things that I believe that I never hear anyone else say. I think one of the best gifts you can go into a marriage with is the expectation that you'll be disappointed. Mm. Because especially when you're young and everybody's gorgeous and all that, you know, <laughs> you're so going to get naggy and, and wrinkly one day. You know, <laughs> But even, even more important than that stuff, and because if you're married a long time, by the time you get baggy and, and wrinkled, if the marriage is good, you love the person anyway. Well, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. But, you know, it's other things like, I like to do things like therapy. You just sit in front of the TV, you know, <laughs> drinking beers or whatever. Okay. Can those two people be happy together? Only if they're able to say, look, he doesn't really enjoy this thing that I am passionate about and require for my happiness. And I couldn't give two, you know, beans about sports. You have to make sure that your um, social group extends beyond your partner, because first of all, it's too much responsibility. Um, if you have a hetero marriage, then your husband is not going to ever be as good as a girlfriend in terms of girlfriend things and vice versa. We don't have to match everywhere. It's okay to be disappointed. Like, Oh, I wish we could share this or that because I love it so much, but there's not going to be another person out there with whom you will share everything exquisitely. So being prepared for that disappointment and surrounding yourself with other people and other interests is really a great protector of your marriage. I love that I, point. Yeah. And I, I think because I hear it so often of like my partner's my best friend. And I think that's beautiful because I think Lucas and I very much embody that. And I think both of our parents very much embodied a friendship within their marriage. However, when I think about it, both of our parents have 
extensive friend groups of, of people that they can rely on and do other things with. And I think that's so important. And so one of my other questions was, how do you hold on to your individuality when you become a partnership? Because that is something that I am so protect, protect, uh, protective of. I am such like a, an individual, I'm independent. I love my alone time. And I think it's important to also maybe expect that your partner is also their own individual and how you navigate that. So what are your tips on that? Well, I don't think you can expect that. That can be one of those things, but I will tell you just in reading the body language, when you were saying that and to, to see, you know, a level of energetic agreement, if you are both independent, sufficiently independent that, you know, you're not um, particularly needy in terms of being easily hurt or you jealous know, or jealous or, you know, we can talk about things. It's, it's okay to be hurt or jealous because feelings come up. But if certain things are repeated, because at the end of the day, what you, you start to understand is this is an issue with one or the other of you that is really unresolved. But I don't think we can ever, ever expect a partner to automatically feel whole within themselves. Mm. And that's, you know, that's a commercial for doing your own work, whether mm. it's therapy or journaling or meditation practice or whatever works for you. But when you have that, you've got everything. Because for my husband and I, we're very close. We really enjoy being together. But He's in his office. I'm here. He goes and does his things. I do my things. And in a way, it becomes kind of like parallel play. Like, I don't need you to hang with me every minute. I will tell you if there's something I'd like you to join with. And, you know, when your children are really young, it's, you know, you can't really achieve that so much because, you can't take care of yourself, much less go out and do your own thing. Um, but as long as you have that respect for each other's individual individuality and needs to, you know what, I have to go out tonight with my girlfriends. Mm. Please, you go tomorrow night with your boyfriends. You know, just that kind of mutual respect goes a long way. If you have individual dreams and your partner has individual dreams, you are set up for a far better result. Yeah, I think that's what I respect, honestly, the most out of myself and Amanda's relationship is because we really love, we're like each other's biggest cheerleader, mm. you know, in our own separate um, endeavors in this life, right? And we love having a day doing separate things and, and working on our own projects and coming together at the end of the day and brainstorming off of each other and, and really respecting each other's time. And it gives us more to talk about. And I think it is really important uh, for couples to really uh, respect each other's journey in life and, and be a supporting factor. Um, but at the same time, you know, also thinking about some of my friends and some of the people in my life and a lot of the people that I've seen that in a relationship is scarce, you know, that, that, that factor of letting that other person be their own individual, you know, having uh, that insecurity, your point on not being that whole person, you know, so that kind of stems into like, do you think you can have a happy and a healthy marriage and relationship with the person if, or relationship altogether, if 
the other half isn't necessarily whole as an individual themselves? Well, first of all, I think we're all in process. Right, we're all just uh, trying to figure out this crazy. You know, thing. I don't think people are broken. I think there's good reasons why we have, you know, our proclivities to what some people might call not move forward as easily as we would like to or other things like that. But nobody's going to have a good relationship without a lot of clear communication. And that means having to say things like, you know, when you don't call me when you're out for the entire evening, and now it's 1am, I get really nervous. And then my fear gets compounded. Now I'm angry because I feel abandoned. So by the time you come home, even though I was on the floor praying, praying that you wouldn't be dead, I'm mad at you. Um, So the conversations that we need to have are sometimes difficult because it's vulnerable to say, you know, on the one hand, I was losing my mind at the thought of your being dead on the road. And I was also losing my mind at the thought of your abandoning me. Right. Um, we all have to do our work. It's part of being an adult. It's certainly part of being a good parent. If you don't understand yourself and don't understand the things that drive you, you're going to repeat your parents' mistakes on your kids, which is not to say that parents are bad, but we all are flawed. And the best way to spare our children from going through the exact thing we went through is to bring more awareness and um, humility and say, oh God, I see myself, I do this and I know, and it's not necessarily from your parents, it could be from your peers, or where I believe most issues come from is what I call the cult of culture, the constant onslaught from media, social media, advertising that teach us from the time that we are very young that we're not good enough. Right. Everybody learns you don't fit in. You're not pretty enough, strong enough, rich enough, cool enough, whatever. But everybody's got plenty of stuff they know they suck about. And I feel like in that same sense, it makes it that much harder to communicate, you know, because you are trying to communicate on how you feel about your yourself and and your body, but, and, and everything from society just makes those feelings that much more, you know, that, that much heavy. That's Um, exactly right. And, and I know a lot of people that could really benefit from communicating in their relationship. And, and one question I wanted to ask you, you know, someone who, maybe was raised watching their parents not communicate, was raised in a family where they, you know, put everything under the rug. There wasn't a lot of communication, a lot of conversation, but they don't want to be that person, right? They want to have a healthy communicative relationship. What are ways or what are things they can do to almost practice that communication or, or get better at being vulnerable with their spouse or partner? Well, you know, there are so many different practices. If psychotherapy is something that appeals to you, it's just a wonderful way to learn the skills that help you answer these questions. Why why do I do that? Or why do you do that? Or why is it when you do that, I do this? And then, you know, we just get into this this, uh, dance. Um, It's also really powerful to journal. And you can ask yourself a question and just stick with that same question and just come back to it and write about it every day until it starts to lead to an answer. Um, 
you know, there are books written about um, ways to approach this. We, in the narrative method, we have three free Zoom-ins every week where people can come. Two of them are writing groups, and one is um, a conversation connection where we look at really compelling videos and go into breakout rooms and talk about personal stories that they evoke. But the reason I love working with groups is because when you are part of a group and people admit that stuff, like they say, well, you know, I always feel like I'm not good enough because, you know, my finger's short or whatever ridiculous thing we've or something we've else is short. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I, I, you set me up for that one. I had to throw that one. You out. know what? Thank you for taking it. Humor <laughs> is important. Um, and, and then somebody else says, me too. Yeah. Now you belong to the world because the thing that you thought privately in your shame, maybe your whole life right. was something that everybody knew was bad about you were not good enough or you could never live up to it. You start to realize every single person and I, you, you, you'll see this in my writing groups. My writing groups are not about learning technical writing. You can learn that anywhere. It's about learning how to connect to your creativity. And the main thing is, is to turn off that critical voice because another thing you learn is every one of us has that little guy inside that says, why'd you do that? You shouldn't have done that. You stuck. You can't write. Who told you you could do that? I told you. Blah, 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 blah. I you feel know? like mine's a little louder than others. <laughs> I, look, yeah, I always I, look for that volume button. I just can't find it, you know? You know, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Some people's may come in a nicer form like, don't you think you should do that? But we <laughs> all have it. And just simply knowing that you're not alone with that. And there are two ways to quiet those voices. The best way is volunteerism. When you do something for someone else, you put aside yourself and all of those voices, and suddenly you are in a space of experiencing your goodness. Mm -hmm. And you can't deny it that your generosity and your goodness is helping someone else. And during that time when you're liberated, it's like going on stage. If you're bleeding, you don't know it, you know? Right. So that's one way that really, really helps to quiet it. And then there are other ways I, you know, I, I use tools that are self-soothing so that when you hear that voice, the first thing you do is you stop. You don't let that voice take over and you understand that that criticism is coming from a part of you that's wounded or afraid. So, you know, if you think of those wounded and afraid parts as children, because they are, if they were fully developed, they would be integrated. But we all have them. They're kind of loose ends based on wounds and fears. So if you have um, a fear because you're going on a blind date with someone and, you know, you think you really are going to like them, but you don't know whether or not they're going to like you. Well, you can decide to not go at all. You could realize your hands are shaking and say, I'm going to go anyway. Right. And what I like to share with people is it's a very simple self-soothing tool used in many traditions. But if you take your dominant hand and put it on your heart with enough pressure that you really feel your heartbeat, you tell yourself that your dominant hand is the grown-up you. 
that figures out everything that you, you have figured out? Did you know what you were going to do when you got pregnant? Did you know? Hell what you, no. You know, <laughs> when the baby's born, when you have a fight, nobody knows, but you figure it out. So the dominant part of you has to reassure the baby parts. It's okay, honey. I know why it's scary because you don't want to be hurt again because it's a little baby inside of you. And then you say, I've got it. And when you are, are sympathetic with it, it'll quiet down. And you know what? So what if you go on the date and your hand is shaking a little? Honestly, I feel like I always, I went on one date in college when Lucas and I weren't together and I didn't know the person at all. And that was honestly one of the biggest confidence boosters ever, because I experienced exactly what you said. I was so nervous. I was like, okay, I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to go. And then I was like, wait, no, I'm going. And then afterwards I was like, okay, it really wasn't that bad. And I think I, I always probably for like a week after that, I was encouraging all my friends to go on like blind dates. Cause I was <laughs> like, it'll boost your confidence, but I want to go back a little bit. Um, and, and well, one say, thank you for bringing up the cult of culture thing. Cause I am so I'm someone that I don't like to consume a lot of media and I don't like to kind of inundate myself with that because I'm very protective of my inner world. And one thing I really want to know, because I think a lot of people in our day and age are constantly inundated by media or they're scrolling on Instagram, they're scrolling on their social media. And I think that also gets in the way of people's communication within a relationship because it can cause a distraction. Something that we always touch on is like, okay, you know, when you're eating dinner, make sure you eat together so that you can actually have a conversation. And then instead of sitting on the couch afterwards, watching Netflix, maybe just turn to each other and talk instead. And so I want to know, because this is something that we've tried or had to work on and, and really make a priority. How can you prioritize deep connection in moments like that after you have a baby with all of the distractions that are in the world? And the answer is the question. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. So I think it's important to not put pressure on yourself. Have the intention. Do it as much as possible. And the older your children become, the more naturally you can integrate it into you know, family life. Dinners. Not everybody can do seven days a week, but dinners, especially, you know, you can have one special one every week and have the, everyone go around and talk about their day or as many as you can. And your idea of unplugging from the external to plug into each other is everything. When you do that as parents, then your children won't be, be asking in 20 years well, how do we connect or what right. would it be like to go to therapy? Because they already have learned to love the process because what they see is when they share what they're really feeling, even if the feelings are difficult, it's met with love and respect and not shaming and you know, not an, an inordinate amount of advice, you know, just appreciation. Like, wow, that's really hard. And I'm a big advocate on, you know, what the children see growing up is kind of how they are when they find themselves in the situation. Cause I, you know, see my parents and how I was raised and I kind of the way I treat Amanda sometimes and, and our, our way and, you know, my mannerisms and the way I treat her as my wife, 
I kind of stop and think like, oh, I saw my dad do that growing up. Or so if you can kind of, you know, put your opinion on the children and and how they grow up and, and what they see their parents and the influence that they see from their parents, like how how much does that matter? A thousand percent. Because first of all, when you're very young, your parents are your entire world. They are God, right? And gradually, you know, you lose that position. Um, you may still be revered and loved, but but you know, they do start to realize that you're you're not perfect and you don't know everything. To be able to model for your children that you struggle too, you know, but that here's how we work it out little by little. We don't expect to change a problem overnight. Here are some steps we take. I think when children um, see, it's okay to show them that you argue, especially if you do it in a respectful way. Because guess what? You need to argue in life. Right. You don't need to fight. You don't need to be disrespectful. But you do need to argue and work out disagreements. And by the way, sometimes we slip up and we're not perfect. And that's okay too, because you show them how to repair. And one thing that is seen all the time in, in treatment rooms is that a good repair can bring people closer together than they ever would have been before. And so don't be afraid of going through it. You know, sometimes there's something that just, it continues to bother you, continues to bother you. But because you stay with it, you might suddenly discover what it comes from is not what you thought. It might be something else entirely. So the process of being analytical with yourself, maybe even interviewing your parents about certain things that you wouldn't remember, because we grow up thinking we have certain memories, but we don't have those memories. They were told to us. We can't always tease out what we think and what we were told. And those are really important things to pay attention to, whether it's within your family or within the bigger culture. I, I think that's so important. And one thing that you mentioned was arguing and more specifically repairing, which to me brings me on the topic of apologizing. And I think we're not really taught as effectively as I think we should be how to apologize and how to argue. So do you have any tips there on like how to effectively effectively argue and then also effectively apologize? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, we were all born with all of this, uh, these skills to be stubborn, you know, but with zero skills to just apologize and admit. Exactly right. <laughs> we are born with the ability to be defensive. Yes. Um, because it's a survival tool, you know, our body and brain doesn't know that we're not, you know, cavemen completely. Uh, so we will, you know, if you, if somebody hurts your feelings, uh, and you have no control over your emotions at that moment, your brain is going to experience it as someone threatening your life. The way to argue is, is very, very simple but hard to do. It's taking turns. Mm. It's first, I'm going to tell you my, my position, how I feel about something. 
and you're just going to listen. And in the way I describe with volunteering, while you listen, you just put yourself aside and try and get into it from my perspective. So I'm going to tell you this thing and, and how I'm feeling, but I'm not going to go on for an hour. I'm going to tell you it for about like as close to about a minute as possible so that your partner can really remember that. And then I'm going to ask you to reflect it back before I move forward so that we can just make sure we're on the same page. We have to really be patient with each other, especially if we're already aggravated. So before we begin this conversation, I would ask both people to say to each other, um, is this still a good time? Because if it's not, it's so much better to postpone it than you know, to have the person looking at their phone right, or not having the patience to put themselves aside. So you establish it's a good time. You take turns and you don't burn yourself out. You go as far as you can. If you have the energy to hear the other person right, then you do that. And then you can take a break, but just make sure that as you go, you are clarifying. When it comes to apology, which we call flowers and tears, that's one of um, our 12 core mm -hmm. concepts. The main thing an apology is, is a humble offering without one excuse. Once there's an excuse, it's not an apology. Oh my God, I, I'm really sorry I was late to your thing, but there was traffic. Not an apology. I'm really sorry I was late. I can imagine, you know, you were trying to get everything organized and now you were worried about, you know, whether or not I was going to be there on time. It's imagining how else it was for the person and then inviting, tell me more. I want to know. It's one thing if you accidentally barely step on someone's toe. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's fine. Right. But if you bang on somebody's foot and it's bleeding, you need a lot more than that. And you even need more the next day and maybe the next day. But if you give someone genuine appreciation for what they've gone through and what you caused, even if it wasn't on purpose, they very often will eventually get to the point where they will feel filled up. And they may even say, it's okay because I did this instead and I got through it. But they probably won't get there if they don't feel sufficiently heard. And so that's the difference between an apology and an excuse. Forgiveness is another story. Forgiveness is personal. Forgiveness cannot be part of the deal. You know, you hope the person forgives you, but you can't demand it. And we, you know, we can ask of ourselves to be forgiving, but if the other person forgives us or not, that really shouldn't depend that shouldn't affect whether or not we apologize. You know, in, in Judaism, we say, you know, you apologize three times very, very sincerely. And if the person won't accept it, then you have to accept that. Mm, I love that. You know, because sometimes, you know, for whatever reason, you've crossed a person in their experience. You didn't mean it. You did whatever. And they just don't want you in their life anymore. And you have to accept that. Yeah. Yeah. I think when it comes to arguing and, and apologizing too, do you think that there's a time that is like, I guess, how do you mitigate the blowups? Like, 
because I think when there's a lot of emotion in, in, you know, passion that is, that is charging in a, a conversation, it's not productive. Yeah. And so when is a time to like, just tell the other person like, okay, we need to take a, you know, our own space for a second and come back. Because I think that's something that I struggle to do. Like Lucas is very good at being like, I can't talk to you right now. I need to go downstairs. <laughs> and I'm like, why can't you talk to me? Like, let's right, figure it out. Right, like, I, I don't right. want to Because leave. I know I'm yeah. going to say something <laughs> stupid. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe you learned that from your dad. I don't know, but uh, I'm no, not, I learned I, it from saying a lot of things stupid. A lot of, <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I've said a lot of things stupid, but I'm still more like Amanda. Um, <laughs> but what I would say is any time before you say something like I effing hate you is a good time to stop. Yeah. Um, try and remember that um, if you do love this person, that you love this person, but you definitely love yourself. Even if you're arguing with somebody that you don't respect, as many times as I may in the moment have felt glad to tell that person what I thought, I have never once felt like, yeah, I told them, well, I don't feel good about that the next day ever. I feel like I was mean. So again, you have to be conscious of being your own gauge. And when you see yourself getting really, really upset, again, take the hand to your heart and tell yourself, I love you. I'm okay. I, as much as I want to say something else, I have to step away right now and do something for myself. I've got to go for a walk. I've got to take a shower, whatever, whatever that thing is. These skills are so hard to develop and we have to develop them because Without these skills, you cannot manifest the life you want. You're going to be limited by the uh, by the relationships that you didn't damage. Right, well, and, and I love that. Hold on, sorry, Lucas, because I just had an epiphany when when yeah, Sherry no was worries. talking. Of, I think that's that is why sometimes I want to keep going because it's almost as if I lacked the skills and never developed the skills to put those emotions elsewhere. I feel like the reason I want to keep going is because I'm, this is where I'm dumping all the emotions and I need to get it out. And I haven't developed a skill or like a pattern of when I'm saying too much and things are being too heated, go elsewhere and put them elsewhere. I do that great with like journaling and, and self-care on my own when it's not like an argument charged thing, but when it's argumentative, I feel like that's the only place I can dump those emotions. And I don't have the skills to find, like, I don't have another skill to cope. Okay. So let me ask you something. First of all, let me just say to both of you, you are both so great because you're, you're <laughs> oh, with it. yourselves and each other. And that's, that's just everything. We all have struggles with these things, right? We can't fix them unless we admit it. So right. let me just ask you this one question. If you can kind of tune into what it feels like when you're in that space, especially if Lucas is saying, you know, I'm gonna step away. What are you really wanting? What is driving you crazy? What do you want? Attention from him. Yes, yes. You want him to hear you. Yes. But why is he walking away? Because, because, because he's probably not wanting to engage in this conversation because it's not productive. He feels attacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he doesn't want to listen to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that 
it's not that he doesn't want to hear you, Amanda. It's that he doesn't um, he doesn't accept this tone. Definitely. This tone is making him feel like he's being yelled at or shamed or he's bad. Yeah, and then and if I feel that way, you know, it it almost sets me up or poses me to say something that I might not necessarily mean in that moment, you know, and then I might say something that I don't mean and then come back a little later, obviously, and then I'm like, wow, why did I say that? I'm such a douchebag, you know, and then I feel terrible about myself, and then I also feel terrible about pissing Amanda off when I say something stupid, so it's like a lose-lose situation, so it's like, uh, I think I should just walk away right now and, and respectfully say okay, that. Well, that's, that's one good strategy. But what else could you do, Lucas, if Amanda's in that state other than walk away? And when I say what else, none of these things are like one size fit, fits all, different circumstances. But what other strategy might you take? Um rather than walking away, maybe warning her that I feel like I want to possibly walk away and give her the time to almost justify or give her the time to speak to me, you know? Okay, so but, okay, but she's, let's say she's on a scale of 10. It sounds like, let's say she's at seven. Right. You know, I mean, and everyone's scale is, is going to be different, but let's <laughs> say she's at seven. So Seven's doable. She's not going to really respond to, you know, if you keep doing this, I'm going to walk away because she's feeling there. You're abandoning her. She wants you to know something and you're walking away. You're yeah, leaving here. With these I, could I, I could tell you what you could do. I could tell you what you could do. I think I know what I could do. I think it's stay my ass, put my ass down and, and stay my ass there. And, no, and no. I think it's telling me I, I want to hear you right now, but I'm not able to hear you right now because of how heated this argument is, is getting. So I'm going to walk away, but I do hear you. Maybe just reassuring me that, that he hears me. That's better. I'm just thinking like, if you're at seven, that, that would be better than not explaining it. Yeah. It would, it'd be helpful if he, if he says, I know you're really trying to communicate something to me, but I'm feeling badly. You yes. know, if, if you say I'm feeling attacked, that might push your button. Mm. Yeah. I'm not attacking you. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I, but yeah. here's another thing. And again, you cannot be burdened, Lucas, with the responsibility of always being able to get your yourself here. But sometimes you might be able to say, I really I do want to hear. Absolutely. Can can we start over? I'm so I'm sorry. Or sometimes it might just be a hug. You may feel that like she doesn't want a hug but maybe sometimes she would. So it's really about being so attuned to each other that you both have a figurative string tied around your finger to remember, wait, we really love each other. He Absolutely. does generally always wanna hear, but there are things coming up for him that because I am so engrossed in my experience that I'm not respecting with him. Really, yeah, definitely. And there are definitely moments and and times where Amanda and I will have a day, maybe like let's say on a Saturday, where you know, we want this Saturday to be a great day. We want it to be a family day and we want to we want to just be happy. And then we'll find ourselves maybe just bickering at small, stupid things. And then we we kind of just look at each other and say, you know what? You know, there's there's really no point of doing that. We we know what kind of day we want to have and and we're gonna make that happen. And and it's kind of 
coming to that mutuality and coming to the same table and and understanding that you know it's not really worth understanding it. when things are stupid and when things are actually productive. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. and then but laughing he, about it and then just making out, you know. <laughs> okay, so um, I, I just showed uh, this video in a class of mine of this wonderful um, uh, family therapist named uh, John Gottman, and he was talking about how, in some cases, what will make um, the couples make up is for a very serious conversation and you know people explain their feelings and you know it takes a couple of hours and in some case it could be one person making a stupid face and then they make out you know? <laughs> so, right you know it's just about remembering that you love each other and for you to remember lucas that if she's in that state it's not because she wants to hurt you it's because she is longing to be heard absolutely Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, a thousand times. I'm just gonna like pull this <laughs> right? clip that's and music, play it. That's for music to her ears. That's that's music to her ears, that's for sure. But I wanted to quickly hone in on a point you brought up earlier about like loving loving yourself, right? And I feel like this is a trend or this is something that's super popular and everyone kind of genuinely understands that you know, you cannot love someone else unless you truly love yourself. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe in that? Yes, I believe it's true. What I don't believe in is when we, even though I would use the word truly as, as much as you would, we can go too far in terms of what we expect of ourselves in, in terms of perfectionism. When I shared with you, Amanda, that I'm, I'm more like you in that way, it, it's because it's, it's a temperamental tendency and it's, I would rather if I didn't have that, but if I just pretend I, you know, it, it, I don't have that kind of tendency, then how can I um, take steps to make sure that I do my best with it? We all have different liabilities. We don't have to be perfect. We have to be good enough. And that, that brings me to another brilliant child psychologist of the last century named Donald Winnicott. He was a, a child analyst and physician who came up with the idea that in order for the baby to thrive, the mother, and now we understand it as the caregiver, doesn't have to be perfect, just good enough. Right. And that's the same in any relationship. And it's the same with ourselves. Stuff has happened. We've got trauma. We've got memories. We will work on it as much as we can. I've grown so much in my life. I'll never get there. Wherever, you know, there's, but we should always reach for it. And so if we can accept ourselves in process, getting better, and better can be min minutely, a little bit goes a long way. So I would suggest to you guys that every time you find yourselves almost on the brink of getting you know too worked up and then you're able to bring it down just go crazy for 10 minutes <laughs> seriously because then you're telling your unconscious something you're rewarding your unconscious for making that choice do you believe that there's baggage or there's trauma that someone has endured or maybe someone's that someone 
or something that they're guilty about, right? And they don't necessarily visit that in their life. And it's still something that's in the corner of their brain that they necessarily haven't gone there, but but try to form a new relationship with someone or, or try to find something new. Do you think that's possible? Or do you think in order to really find a new love or find a new person, like you got to visit that baggage or you got to visit that trauma eventually to be able to really well, we, give yourself to that person? But there, yes, we all have a lot of trauma, some of which we won't remember. If I, I would, I heard, I don't know, I wasn't really there, but I, I apparently was dropped on my head uh, when I was a baby, not mm -hmm. deliberately. That's the story I heard. I think I was on a swing, but regardless, I fell on my head. Now, I don't know if that's the, why I'm like this. Uh, I don't know if I had trauma around it or trauma around, you know, how it was handled afterwards. Things that happen pre-verbally or even when we're quite young and don't have the capacity to compare it to something else. So it's just this amorphous blob of feeling and that feeling can come up and be familiar through our lives. We can't process everything. Right. We can't remember everything. We don't have to be perfect. And as therapists, what we do is we, we sort of work backwards by the process of elimination, trying to understand what may have happened based on behavior and feelings. And that's what we do with ourselves. So you don't have to be perfect to, you know, love somebody. And I promise you won't be. And um, that's okay. But just to live your life with devotion to growing individually and together, it's everything. I have one last question before we wrap up. I think something that's very on my mind as a parent, especially now being married is how to model to our kids that they can feel their emotions to the fullest. What are your tips on that in terms of like things that maybe Lucas and I can do when we're communicating with each other and how we com communicate our, to our son to really foster that, that vulnerability of being able to share your feelings safely instead of suppressing them? Perfect. Great. Important question. Model it. Hmm. So <coughs> And when your kids are young, you can do it really as an exercise. So let's say, you know, something happened at school and um, he was ignored and his feelings were hurt, and he's, whatever, in preschool, he's not going to really get your whole strategy. But you might say to Lucas, you know, I was with my friend today and it really hurt my feeling because she didn't share her cupcake, whatever it is, when they're little you can model it like that and maybe they'll bring it up and it, you can create, you know, sort of a conversation around it. But even as they get older, as you guys model working through things and, you know, it, there's no, no problem in making small issues sort of bigger to stop and model that if you guys have the time for the benefit of the child to see. And then there'll be plenty of times when you're really aggravated and show them what the repair looks like. Again, it's never about being perfect. It's about being good enough 
coming from the intention of loving each other, yourselves, your children, and teaching them to love themselves in the world. Love that, Sherry. Thank you so much for that. Sherry, this has been so amazing. I mean, I feel like we have we had like 30 questions that we could still like ask you, but We've we'll have to save it. And a part three and a part four. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to save it. But if people want to work with you or if they want to find you, um, I know we spoke on my podcast. So every, everyone listening can go on the pretty naked podcast and listen to Sherry and, and talk about the narrative method in length. But if people want to find you, if they want to work with you, how can they do so? Um, go to the narrative method.org. That's the website. You can sign up for, free zoom-ins for classes. Um, you can get swag. Um, and um, if you want to get in touch with me, just send me an email at info at the narrative method.org. We want, we want our work to spread. We want everybody to be able to achieve one degree more connection with themselves and other people. It'll make such a big difference in the world. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you, Sherry. Thank you.